little bit of background to remind you how did we got to where we're at. They finished up building the walls in Nehemiah. That's the whole focus of the book of Nehemiah, is the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. And we've talked about how that is something that is vital to Jerusalem as a town, and it shows a lot more. It shows the nation being rebuilt. There's also a spiritual connotation of you having walls in your life that are strong. The book of Proverbs talks about walls in our life that protect us. Not walls to make us go hide as Christians. We don't believe in that fort mentality that we as Christians just go run to the hills and hide and wait for Jesus to return. No, we're supposed to be out there being a light and a witness in all we do and say. But this idea that we build walls to protect ourselves from the world and the attacks that come from that. So once the walls are done, you see in Nehemiah chapter 8, you see the nation getting spiritually to where they're going to be. And they have this wonderful, for lack of a better word, church service, if you will. Where they have worship, they have fellowship, they have ministry, they have the reading of the word. And it leads them to do something at the end of chapter 8 called the Feast of Tabernacles. And we talked about that. The Feast of Tabernacles is where they would actually go out and build tents. And they would live out in tents here for a week to remind them of God's provision for the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. Keep that in the back of your mind, because we're going to talk a lot tonight about the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. Well, this time of spiritual renewal takes us to Nehemiah chapter 9, where we left off last week, and we did the first few verses of it. And we look at verse 3, that they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So this is not what's going on. This nation is so focused on the Lord. They're spending a fourth of the day learning the law, reminding themselves of what it meant. This generation did not know it. And so now they're getting into Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and saying, Lord, what is it that you want for us out of us as a nation? And then they're spending the other part of their day realizing their sin. Because when you go read the law and you realize everything that God said is holy and good, and they realize we're not doing this, they're broken, but they're broken in a good way. So they're spending a chunk of their day learning, and then they're saying, oh, look what we learned today. Now let's go confess this. And then they're spending the rest of the day there in confession. But look how this all comes together. First thing you see, verse 3, they're reading from the book of the law. God's word cuts. Never forget that. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts right to the heart. It's supposed to cut. I am all for encouragement, I am all for fellowship, etc., but the purpose of the church is for us to get together as the body of Christ, and according to Ephesians, to equip the saints, to go out there and be lights and witnesses in all that we do and all that we say. So we're supposed to give you God's word to equip you with the tools you need to then go out and represent Jesus Christ for those days that you have in the world. And so when you learn about God's word, it's going to cut sometimes. You're going to hear something and realize... I'm struggling with that. You're going to hear something and realize, I, I'm, not, I'm not meeting that expectation that God has. So when that happens and you are cut, I've learned this. The more I learn, the more I see how holy God is and I see how much sin I'm in. But it makes me love him even more because he just loves me. So the word of God cuts, but then what do I do after it cuts? Verse 3, I confess. See, now this is where we run into issues. And we talked about this Sunday, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But when people are cut by the word of God, sometimes they go to the moping mentality. What an awful husband I am. What an awful wife I am. What an awful Christian I am. I'm just the worst Christian believer in the world. How can God love me? And we sit in this little spiritual depression. Romans 8 says you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. 
People are dying and going to hell. Get out of your little pit and go represent Christ Jesus. Now we go to the other extreme. I call it the I mentality. Okay, I see what I'm doing wrong, so I need to work on this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it becomes this I thing. The answer is found right in the middle. I am an awful sinner, but God loves me. And God wants to use me, and he's going to empower me. So when I realize my sin, I confess my sin. Remember this verse. It's a great one to know. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful verse. That verse is literally life-changing. When you run into somebody who is carrying the baggage of bad life choices and they're full of guilt and shame, that you can go to them and say, Do you realize... If you confess your sins, that Christ is willing and ready and wanting to forgive you of your sins. Now, this is where we have to understand what the biblical word confess means. In that 1 John 1, 9 in the New Testament, the word confess means to agree with. So when I confess my sins, it does not mean I admit my sins. It does not mean I acknowledge my sins. I confess, I agree with. What do I agree with? I agree with God that what I did was wrong according to the standards he set in the Bible. Most of the time when we hear the word confession, we just think it means admit. Well, I confess to you I did that. But do you feel bad about it? No, not really. But I confess to you I did it. I acknowledge to you that I sinned. I admit that I sinned. But I don't think I did was wrong then you're not understanding biblical confession. Biblical confession is not acknowledging, it's not admitting, it's agreeing with God that it was wrong and that you need the forgiveness of the Lord. So when you understand that confession, you see this nation broken. They hear God's word, it breaks them in a good way, they confess, but look how they ended up with in verse 3. They worship. That's the way it's supposed to work. God's word cuts, reveals I'm a sinner, Leads me to confession, and then I realize I'm forgiven. Why would I not just want to worship him then? And just say, Lord, you forgave me. As far as the east is from the west, I I am forgiven. I have entrance into heaven. This is exciting, Lord. So what happens is these guys and gals here just realize how awful of a sinner they were. God just forgave them. And now they're going to worship him. And what you have here from verse 5 through the rest of the chapter is basically a confession. And an acknowledgement of, Lord, this is where we have failed as a people and a nation. But we see how you have still worked with us. So I encourage you as you go through this, look at the sins they confess. Does that apply to anything we're going through today for us as individuals, etc.? But also look how they handle their sin. First thing you see them doing, verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. What you will see in prayer is you always should start prayer out with praise. It just really sets the tone. Think about this. When Jesus gave us the example of prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really a, a bad name. It starts out with this idea of our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a fancy word. Holy, set apart is your name. He's starting the prayer out with praise. I encourage you in your prayer time for the day, start out with praise. It really sets the tone. 
Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Over the years, I've run into a lot of people that when you tell them this, well, i got nothing to praise God about. Man, that's a glimpse right into your heart. You don't see your salvation. You don't see the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You don't see God's goodness and moving in your life. The only thing you want to focus on is complaint, complaint, complaint. I already know a lot about you just by hearing that. We had to have a little work done on our van today. And it happened to be right across the uh, Taco Bell in Ottawa. So I had two hours to kill. So I went to Taco Bell after VBS. Worked on the lesson and ate tacos. And so I'm in there for two hours. And I'm just going to tell you right now. God love Ottawa. There's a lot of interesting people that go to Taco Bell in Ottawa. I'm just telling you, if you ever want to do a study on human nature, go to Taco Bell and sit for two hours. So I'm sitting there, and there's a couple, and it's one of those weird couples, God love them, but you know what I'm talking about? Like there's seats all over the place, and they literally sit right beside you, and you want to say, why are you doing this? Because this is not of God. I can tell. I'm praying about it, and you're not supposed to be here. So... I'm working on the lesson. They're sitting beside me. And so I listen to them. And I could tell they're a married couple. I'm guessing they've probably been married at least 40 years. They're just constantly just the bickering, the complaining. She's Googling. And I'm not making this up. All of her health issues. She has a problem with her bowels. Please pray for her. But this is what's going on. And it's just, it's a constant complaint. It's a constant negativity. It's a constant bickering at each other. She wanted extra sour cream. And they accidentally gave her guacamole. And so she wanted him to go up and they paid 30 cents extra for it and they got into a fight about it and it's just like my goodness that's just a slice of the world right there my 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 tacos messed up i got guacamole and i wanted extra i paid 30 cents for extra sour cream and it's the end of the world and i I look at this and i see verses five and six starting out with praise and i realize we christians aren't that much different do we wake up in the morning and say lord You hold my very breath in your hand. You gave me breath this morning to wake up. I have an opportunity to go represent you at work. I have an opportunity to get in your work. I have an opportunity to pray. I have an opportunity. Lord, I'm excited for what you have today. No, we don't, do we? What would happen if we'd start our prayer off with, Lord, I praise you. I praise you for creation. I praise you for salvation. I praise you for the Holy Spirit. I praise you just for you moving. I praise you in faith for the things that you are going to do and how you're going to make beauty out of ashes right now in my life. What would happen if we would change that? I'm telling you right now, it would change your life. It would change your prayer life. But we have to get to that point of realizing there's always something to praise God about because he's just God. So they start out with praise. So now, after praise, they start going through some attributes of God. First thing they want to talk about is that he is sovereign. Verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Gigersites. To give it to his descendants, you have performed your words. You are righteous. God, you are sovereign. You chose Abraham. You brought him out of Ur. You gave him the name. You gave him the land. You. See, after I praise God, if I realize he's sovereign, when I go out to my car and there's a flat tire, God's sovereign. When I realize that the day's not going the way I thought, God's sovereign. Lord, you are allowing things to come in through the filter of you. So when my world hasn't turned out the way I want, God, you're sovereign. Here we are as a nation, Israel. We're finally out of captivity. Jerusalem's a mess. It's a mess. 
Yes, they have a functioning temple. Yes, they have walls that protect them. But you're going to find out in a couple chapters, no one wanted to live in Jerusalem. So they actually do a lottery system. And they draw people's names that have to live in Jerusalem. Because no one wanted to live there. So instead of whining and complaining, we start out with praise. And we start out with God, you're sovereign. That changes your prayer life right there. And if case, if you haven't noticed already, this prayer takes a while. One commentator, and I, and I can't say whether this is true or not, one commentator said this is actually the longest prayer in the Bible. Most of the time when we think of our prayer life, we get up in the morning, it's like, Lord, thank you for the day. Be with me today. Safe. Keep my loved ones safe. Thank you for what you're doing. And I pray for health and just uh, amen. It's like, okay, Lord, I got it done. Let's move on. What would happen if we would stop and say, I, I do have 24 hours today. I'm really going to set aside time to really grow and spend in you because whatever I'm facing doesn't matter. I can't remember who said this quote, and I wish I could give it credit. I believe it was Martin Luther. That quote, I'm kind of paraphrasing it here a little bit, where he said, I have so much to do today that I need to spend the first hour in prayer. And what a mindset. I have so much I have to get done today, I probably should start praying right now to make sure everything gets accomplished. Changes your mindset. They start out with praise. Next point you see, God is sovereign. If there's something in your life right now that you're not really liking, God is sovereign. Glory in tribulations. Trust his perfect will. What else do we see happening? Verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard the cry by the Red Sea. God, you're sovereign, but you also see what's going on in my life. And sometimes the sovereignty of God, verse 9, there's affliction. (laughs) It hurts. Some of you right now are in physical pain. Some of you are in emotional pain. You're in a spiritual struggle. God is sovereign and God says, I see your affliction. So now what we're going to talk about is their time in the wilderness. Verse 10, you showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself at this day. Lord, you saw the pain, you saw the struggle, and you acted. Verse 11, you divided the sea before them. So they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with the cloudy pillar and by night with the pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. So Lord, in the 40 years of affliction in the wilderness, you were still sovereign. The 40 years of trial and tribulation, you still took care of us. You're going to see seven things mentioned. About how God took care of them. Now, when we go through and we talk about them wandering for 40 years, we always present it as God's discipline. And it was. The people complained. They came out of Egypt. And they whined and complained. And God said, fine, I'm not going to deal with you guys. So you're going to wander until this generation dies off. And then I'm going to start afresh with a brand new generation. So we look at it as God being angry. But when you study out this chapter, what they want to focus on is everything God did to provide for them. So let's talk about this. What's everything the Lord's doing that he's going to provide for them? Let's just kind of go down the list right here, if you would with me, please. Verse 12. You led them with day with the cloudy pillar, and at night with the pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. If you remember your Sunday school lessons, when they were wandering the wilderness, by day they had this big cloud that led them, and at night they had this pillar of fire. Now, that's kind of what we talk about. But what you see being hinted now in here is this. That cloudy pillar 
was actually shade for them in the wilderness of the sun. That fiery pillar at night was actually light and heat for them to keep them safe and protected. God was providing for them, giving them shade, giving them light, giving them warmth. If you could step back, and when I say you, I make it sound like I'm attacking you, so I will say me. If I could step back from my whining and moaning and complaining, I could probably see clouds and pillars in my life right now. But instead, I just see it as complaints. What else did the Lord do to take care of them? Well, we have to look at all these other amazing verses that's going on in this chapter. Can you go with me to the chap- excuse me, same chapter? Take a look at uh, verse 15. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go and to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. So for 40 years, they had food every morning, manna. They had food every single morning. And they also had water coming out of the rock. So four things now that he provided. He gave them shade, light and warmth. He gave them food every morning. And he gave them water. This water came from this rock. That's a picture of Jesus, the Bible says. I heard a commentator say one time that he says he thinks the rock followed them around. Now wouldn't that be kind of cool? You pack up and say, come here, rock. And rock just kind of follows you around type thing. But every morning they get up and guess what? There's food. Food taken care of. And the Bible also says at times that God gave him quail. He was always taking care of them. And this is where it gets even more fascinating. Jump ahead, if you will, please, down to verse 19, same chapter. Yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of a cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Look at verse 21. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So their clothes never wore out, their feet did not swell, and according to Deuteronomy 29, their shoes lasted 40 years. Did you ever think about that? Now we go shoe shopping like once a year for the boys. And we have to take like a second mortgage out to go do it. I cannot imagine 40 years the shoes lasting. Any of you that have children, especially kids that are growing, you know how quickly things change with that. So if you're keeping track at home, seven things gave them shade, light and warmth, food, water, clothes, feet did not swell, and their shoes lasted for 40 years. There's actually a verse in Deuteronomy, and you could take it a couple different ways on it, but it almost seems to teach they also didn't get sick for 40 years. Now, we know there's plagues that hit them by their own disobedience, but the point of this chapter is, Lord, you took care of us in the wilderness. Now, when you're going through a wilderness time, do you realize that? God's actually taking care of you. No, we just want to focus on absolutely everything that's wrong. Instead, we need to stop and realize what they did. Lord, you're actually taking care of us when we don't even realize it. And we want to stop and praise you for that. So we're going to stop right here for a quick moment. Any quick questions, comments, anything we covered so far? Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. When you go out and study manna, and you can study this out in Exodus, it's I jokingly refer to it as donuts. 
it's, it's kind of like this wafery thing with honey. It was sweet, and they would go collect it. It's, it's fascinating stuff. It's really fascinating. And what they would wake up in the morning, this manna would be covering the grass like a dew, and they would go collect it. And that was their food. And it's really interesting. When you go study it being done in the wandering, the Bible makes it clear that as soon as they got to the promised land, God said, no more manna. You're now in the promised land. You can live off the, the ground. This man is a beautiful thing. Um, Jesus said that he is that bread, the bread of life there. It's a neat little spiritual picture. I encourage you, if you want to do a little bit deeper study tonight, go look up man in the Bible. Really study it out. It was so important that they wanted to keep part of it, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant to remind us for generations that what the manna was and God's provision for them for 40 years. It's kind of a neat thing. Anybody else have anything here? Yeah, Megan. Well, you know, real, real quick before I forget, spoiled, that's a good point. I'm going to get back to that. Before I forget, um, I believe if you look up what the word manna means, it means what is it. If you want to, I, I go check that out sometime in the Hebrew. I believe manna means what is it. It's such a unique thing of the Lord. But back to what Megan said, they were spoiled. I don't look at it as spoiled. What you're going to see here in Nehemiah 9, you're going to see it as God's mercy. That, that's, that's the way they take it as God's mercy. And you brought up a good point, which is going to be my segue now. The word mercy here, let me double check because I wrote it down. I wanted to make sure. Mercy is used seven times in this chapter alone. Now, some of your translations don't translate it mercy. You translate it compassionate or compassion. So were they spoiled? God wouldn't look at it as being spoiled. He would look at it as, I'm giving you mercy. They didn't deserve this. And God still gave it to them. Anybody else have anything before we move on? Okay, now that we've kind of set the tone a little bit of where and who God is, verses 13 and 14 now, we're going to give one more example of God, the direction he gives, and now we're going to do this for the rest of the chapter. It's going to be like, here's our sin, here's your mercy. Here's our sin, here's your mercy. Verses 13 and 14, you came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. So the last thing that God did is he gave them direction. He didn't leave them wandering. He said, I'm going to give you rules, laws, statutes, commandments, ordinances. It's a fascinating study. And if you want to do it, take a look at verse 13. All those different words mean different things. Gave them just ordinances, true laws, statutes, and commandments. See, we look at Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and we say, Oh, thank you. I am not under this. Yes, that's true. We're not under it. But the Lord said, I'm giving you these rules and regulations also as protection. This is my direction for your life. I I cannot stress to you enough, as as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, if you're here tonight, this is the most important thing is to really get into this and understand it. This is what gives you direction. When I talk to someone, and they're like, I don't know what God has in plan for me. I'm kind of feeling spiritually dry. I just kind of feel like I'm bouncing around. Okay, how's your prayer life? Mm, Not really there. How's your time in the Word? Not really there. Okay, then where do you think you're going to get direction from? If you come and you say, my world is falling apart, X, Y, and Z has happened, I feel completely broken. Okay, when you're going through devotions in the morning, when you're praying with your spouse, what's the Lord revealing to you? Oh, not really anything because I'm not in it. Well, then how are you supposed to have direction and guidance? The Lord says, I'm giving this to you. I want you to have this. So now from this point forward, you're going to see all the good of God. We praise you. You're sovereign. 
You answered us in our affliction. You met our needs for 40 years. You gave us direction. And how did we respond? Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. If you want to keep track of the sins that they did, the first two ones are pride and stubbornness. And those two sins today are still the big ones. Pride and stubbornness. How many times as a believer have you said, I know what the Lord wants me to do, but... What could you possibly say after that statement? That just becomes a stubbornness. You've heard us say out here many times before, look through who God has used in the Bible. He has used all sorts of men and women, but he won't work with pride. Pride and stubbornness will always cause an issue. So they were prideful, they were stubborn. Verse 17, they refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. They hardened their necks in their rebellion. They appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Now stop right there, don't read ahead. See, that's their sin. What would you do with a prideful, stubborn nation in rebellion? Take a look at the end of verse 17. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Boy, I love that verse. I mean, just just think about this. Pride, stubborn, refusing to obey, hardened their hearts, rebellion... And God says, I'll pardon, be gracious, merciful, slow to anger, kindness, and not forsake you. That, that's just amazing. Same thing still happens today. We are over here and God says, yeah, but I still love you. Oh, I just absolutely love this. Okay, what else do they do wrong? Verse 18, even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great prov- uh, provocations. They did idolatry. Verse 19, yet in your manifold mercies, there's our word again. You're going to see it seven times. You did not forsake them in the wilderness. Even when they got into idolatry, God said, I'm still going to show you mercy. This is just the love of the Lord there. So we've covered 19, 20, and 21. Verse 22, what did the Lord do? He says, I'm not even going to give you mercy. I'm also going to bless you. Verse 22, moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divide them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon and the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. God says, I'm going to bless you with land. Verse 22. I'm going to bless you with descendants. Verse 23. I'm going to bless you with authority. Verse 24. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land and gave them into their hands the kings. I'm giving you authority. And then verse 25, I'm just going to bless you with the land. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods. Cisterns already dug. Vineyards, olive groves, and the fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. We keep sinning, God keeps loving. We keep messing up and God keeps blessing. It's amazing. You would think they'd figure it out, but no verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their backs, killed your prophets, testified against them to turn them into yourself, turn them to yourself, and they were great provocations. So what did he do? Verse 27, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them, gave them a spiritual spanking. And at the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant, there's our word, mercies or compassions, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. So we've been prideful, stubborn, 
rebellious, and now we're just flat out disobedient, and God says, I'm still going to give you mercy. This is why they're praising him. It hasn't changed today. So you think they finally figured it out now, verse 28, but after that they had rest. Guess what they did? They again did evil before you. There's this ongoing theme. We're in trouble because of our sin, Old Testament. God saves us. Lord, thank you. We love you. We're going to serve you. Time goes on. We're in trouble because of our sin. We cry out for help. God hears us. He saves us. He us mercy. And it just kind of keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. And what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 9, it's like the nation of Israel finally is stopping and saying, Guys, do you realize over the last 1,500 years what we've been like as a nation? God's mercy is just there. He just keeps helping us. He just keeps blessing us. See, look at this in verse 28, though. After they had rest, they did evil before you. Do you ever think about how much that's what we crave as an adult, as a human? We just want rest, free time, a day off, vacation. Do you realize that most of the time when we crave free time, I end up sinning in my free time? I do better spiritually, not a legalistic, don't take it this way, but when I have a focused heart on the Lord. I do better when there's things to do for the Lord. Because free time leads me down a path of just falling into traps and patterns that I don't want to be. I'm not saying that you should spend every moment of every day. There is a time for rest. There's a Sabbath. God has ordained that. But a Sabbath rest does not mean you take a rest from the Lord. I think sometimes we forget that. It's like, oh, it's my Sabbath. It's my day off. That means I'm free to do whatever I want. No. The Lord says you're supposed to take a break from your normal work routine and focus on Him. That may mean outreach. That may mean going and doing stuff. It may mean serving someplace. We just got to be careful that when you see in the Bible a lot of times when man got physical rest, they got themselves in physical problems as well too. So they rest. They get in trouble. God comes and saves them. You see this being repeated again and again and again. So verse 28, you left them in the hand of their enemies. They had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You just keep on loving us, Lord. Again, guess what happens in verse 29? You testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. What did we do? They acted proudly, did not heed your commandments, sinned against your judgments. So we sin again. But what does God do? We're stiffened our necks. We would not hear. Verse 30, but for many years you had patience with them, testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for your God, gracious and merciful. That kind of ends the confession part. So they've gone through 1,500 years of history. Lord, our pattern is, we sin, you forgive. We sin, you forgive. We sin, you forgive. You are sovereign. You deserve praise. You give us direction. You are amazing, and we just keep sinning, and you forgive. Now, verse 32 on, what are we going to do with this information? So what they decide to do now is they mean to take a covenant. And they're going to take this covenant with God. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps the covenant in mercy... Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. It's not, it's not your fault, God. We messed up. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. 
Neither are kings, nor are princes, or priests, nor are fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies which you have testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in that many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them. Nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today. In the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. So, Lord, even through all of our sin, you still put us here, Lord. We're here because of you. It yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure. We are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Basically, they come full circle and say, Lord, we are going to be your people. Now, this is the word that's used in verse 38, this idea of covenant. This is not a word we think of a lot. This word covenant is such a strong word. It literally means in the Hebrew to cut because it carries a double connotation. When you would make a covenant back in the Old Testament, you would take an animal and you would sacrifice it. You would cut the animal. Plus, it carries the idea that if one of us breaks this covenant, let us be cut for breaking the covenant. This is why it's so important in the Old Testament. You read about the covenant of marriage. Because when the marriage ends, it's cut. It's awful. And so what the Lord is trying to say here is we are making this covenant, the people and the Lord. And we are not just saying, Lord, I want to go deeper. Lord, I want to pray more. I want to read more. No, Lord, we are saying right here, right now, because of your grace and mercy, we're yours and all that we say and do. Now, what does that look like for us today? I don't know, because I think, to be honest with you, a lot of us, myself included, can we really say that? I mean, have you really thought about that? Lord, I'm yours. All day, every day, every moment of the day, I'm yours. Not, not just an hour on Sunday. See, that's what a lot of people do, isn't it? Let's just be honest. They did their church thing. Not just for 15, 20 minutes in the morning. I'm going to start my day off with you. But I'm really going to look at every moment of the day as truly yours. And Lord, I make this covenant with you because that's really what I want. So when your word says, never stop praying, I'm never going to stop praying. When, when people come to my mind, I'm going to give them over to you. When I see somebody struggling, I'm going to pray for them. When things come to my mind about church or ministry, I'm just going to constantly be in prayer and constantly talking with you, Lord. I'm going to realize that my day is not my day. I'm not working to get to free time because rest may lead to problems. I'm working to get to the point of, Lord, I'm yours. What do you want me to do today? So my perfect evening is this. Your perfect evening is that. Well, Lord, what's your perfect evening for me? Richard and I was talking Saturday. As you know, um, we got the phone call. We've been talking to Jody about Becca, and she was doing pretty rough there. So Saturday morning before Bible study, I was talking to her on the phone, and she said, Becca's not really doing good. So I said, okay, I'm at Bible study right now. I said, once I get done with Bible study, I'm going to talk to Rich. And see what his schedule looks like, see what my schedule looks like, and, let's, and we may try to get down there. So we talked, and we realized, you know, with Church Sunday VBS, the best day to go down was Saturday. And so we said, you know what, this is really important. You know, Becca's really hurting. You know, we want to get down there and support Jody and Becca, so we took off right after Bible study. So here it is. We're heading down to Cincinnati. And it was, you know, Saturday was a beautiful day. And so we were just kind of talking, you know, what we were thinking about doing for the day. And, you know, my plans for Saturday was I was going to go mow, and then I was going to weed whack because I need to get that taken care of. I was going to work on this. I was going to work on that a little bit. So we are kind of just talking about what our plans were for the day. That kind of got changed. And then we stopped, and we looked at each other and said, but you know what? Our daughter is not in the hospital. Our daughter is not on a vent. Our daughter is not hooked up to so many machines to keep her alive. It really doesn't make a lick of difference what we were going to do today because that doesn't matter. 
But how often is that how we live? This is what I was going to do today. Then God had the audacity to step in and change my plans. And not just about the day. Maybe it's about life. I've heard so many people say this. This was my goal. This is all I've thought about since I was a kid. This is all I've ever wanted. And then the Lord has never... Well, if that's your sole focus, maybe that's become an idol to you. If God is sovereign and He has stepped in and quote-unquote changed your day, your week, your month, your plans, your life, then He's sovereign. You trust Him. And what the nation of Israel finally figured out 1,500 years too late is, God, we trust you. We give it over to you. We are your people. We're done fighting you on this. And we're making this covenant today to say, Lord, we are all yours. So I don't know what you're battling today. I don't know what you're struggling with. Hopefully nothing. But if you are, I just encourage you to take a look at Nehemiah chapter 9. Start it out with praise. Start it out with worship. Then go to the sovereignty of God and realize, Lord, it is all in your hands. And I make a covenant with you, Lord. I'm yours. See what the Lord does with that. And you will be blessed just like they were blessed many times over. Any final questions, comments here about anything? Ryan. Yeah. And that's like for us a thousand years since the Middle Ages the Crusades, and it's just you know that's just the day before. It, it is. It's it's hard sometimes for us to relate when we go back and read Genesis, and you do Genesis one, two, three, four, five, and all of a sudden six chapters in, you're already to the flood. But if you really start studying out Genesis, that's that's like sixteen hundred years. In just five short chapters. So yeah, we read Nehemiah, and we say, oh, Nehemiah, you know, I wonder how close he was to Joshua. Oh, only about a thousand plus years away from him. But we don't, we don't really put that into perspective sometimes when we read these chapters. And basically what they're saying is there's a thousand plus years of us being rebellious to the Lord. And God in his mercy still just loving us. Just loving us. Anybody else have anything here before I close up? Megan. Yeah. They, they were. They were afraid to go in. Uh, they sent spies in. Only two spies came back, Caleb and Joshua, that said, we can do this. They started complaining about the promised land, you know, and God just basically said, enough is enough. You know, God just said, I'm blessing you, I'm blessing you, I'm taking care of you, I'm taking care of you. And, you know, and it's easy to pick on these guys. It really is. Because this generation is the generation that saw all the plagues in Egypt. This generation is the generation that walked through the Red Sea on dry land. You know, this is the generation that had the manna, the quail, the rock, the pill. I mean, can you imagine how easy it would be to witness to someone? And when they say, well, I don't know if God exists. Hey, can you step outside and look at the big pillar of fire that follows me around everywhere I go? And every morning when I wake up, there's just donuts on my grass. And I just go out and pick them up. It'd be really easy to say God's there. So if somebody would come up to them in the wilderness and say, Oh, I don't know if God exists. You'd look at him and say, Are you crazy? You walked across the Red Sea on dry land and you're doubting whether God exists? These people saw unbelievable things. And it wasn't enough for them. 
They wanted to go back into bondage to Egypt. They wanted what Egypt had to offer. They were scared to go in the promised land. They complained. And it's just like God said, enough's enough. We're going to start from scratch. People are going to be rebellious. Two, two thoughts come to that. The first one is in Revelation where the two witnesses are on this earth, you know, doing amazing, miraculous things. The world doesn't want anything to do with them. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that when they die and are resurrected, the world's going to see it. And they're still going to reject. Um, I think back to the millennial reign of Christ, that there's going to be a generation born in the millennial reign that's only going to know Jesus as king. Nothing else, and Satan's going to be let loose and deceive them and bring them back into rebellion. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden uh, brought into rebellion, into sin. It's just we're, we are such sinners, and that, and that is not a point to attack us. It's a point to realize, realize God's mercy, grace, and compassion. God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. It's an amazing thing. Why would we not want to take that information now and go tell everybody about that? All right, anybody else have anything here before we close up? Alrighty, would you guys stand with me, please? Uh, Heavenly Father, good to be here tonight. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your sovereignty, and we praise you. We praise you for who you are. Um, we ask your blessing upon the final two days of VBS and on Sunday, too, that it would all be for your glory and outreach for you, Lord. We think of the upcoming outreaches in Dearborn and... Um, Lima Correctional, Back to School Giveaway. We think of also the uh, prayer chain. All these for you. It's not about us. It's about you. But for right here, right now, help us to walk in your covenant and help us to truly say we want to be everything that you have for us in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless. If you have anything you want to pray about, I'll stay up here for a little bit. We can pray and hope you guys have a blessed time.